This is Small Changes, Stark Reality on jasoncharles.net. Cheers, party people. How are you? Another episode of Stark Reality. This time we're talking to Chuck Modiano, who is a writer, lecturer, and trainer dedicated to promoting equity in sports media coverage, a.k.a. a justice journalist. You can frequently see him at various protests around the country and especially in D.C. where he lives. I think he does a lot of really important work covering what's going on there, interviewing people, and also a longtime sports fanatic. We talk about activism, being actively anti-racist, the NFL, social media, and how much of an asshole Bill Maher is. So there you go. Chuck is the man. He didn't really give us a playlist, but it's all good. And uh, let's get into it. Chuck Modiano, Stark Reality. Cheers. Sure, let's do it. Yeah, so you grew up in, uh, you're based in D.C. now, right? I am. But you grew up in uh, New York. I did. I grew up in New York City. Absolutely. What What was the Was it in that kind of era that uh, people talk about in terms of uh, graffiti on the trains and all that stuff? Um, I think I'm a little bit uh, younger younger than that. Um, but no, I mean when I was a kid, kid. Uh, but I, you know, I grew up in Queens, and uh, I, I was a I was in the New Jersey suburbs for a little bit, and then I moved back to the city. And then in 2000, I moved over here to D.C. Um, but for the most part, I grew up in New York City and around New York City. Um, my loyalties, even on sports teams, were Knicks and Yankees and Jets. Um, so so I was a big did, sports how does, fan. How does that jive with your D.C. people? Well, you know, it's interesting. <laughs> it's interesting. You come to D.C. and the D.C., the first thing I noticed is that when the Washington football team lost when you walked into work it was a morgue right it was like a morgue and and at that time uh 2000 it was really the only game in town there wasn't uh i don't know if baseball had had arrived back already the withers stunk for so long so this was really a football town that uh almost owned the mood of the city Whereas in New York City, you almost have two teams. And, you know, if you're a fan of one team, you don't like the other. If you're a Yankee fan, you don't like the Mets fans. Exactly. You argue with them in school. Exactly. Uh, it doesn't work like that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> unless unless you're a Knicks fan. But that was before um, Brooklyn moved over. So I'm sure there's a little different dynamic now. Right, right, right. And um, you've obviously been writing about sports for a while. You're basically sure. a, a sports fanatic. Like, how did you kind of first get into sports or... Uh... Well, I've been a sports nut since I was a kid and I was just always into sports. And it's funny because there's no reason from a 
family point of view that I would be into sports. My father wasn't into sports at all. I was watching uh, TV. And, you know, what's interesting, even though he not only wasn't a fan, he sort of disliked sports. He thought it was stupid. And I was a slow reader and I was uh, not into reading as a child. But he saw that I was into sports and he bought me sports uh, subscription to Sports Illustrated, which I started reading cover to cover, you know, everything. And I started and now I'm reading all the time. And at the time, it was the only thing that I would read and got me interested. And, uh, you know, that was sort of a segue of me reading. And I, I always say that to anybody working with young people, find what they're interested in and then get them hooked. And, you know, that's what got more into sports. That, that is move. really crazy. So he was kind of yeah. throwing it like, okay, this will get him reading. But then he actually turned yeah, you into a sports worried. nut. <laughs> he, yeah. Well, you know, well, well I, was, I was already in sports. I was watching it on TV. And I, but I didn't read a lot. I didn't like reading. And I would come from school. I don't really like to read this. And I never concerned because, you know, well, my father reads a lot. He loves to read. And, um, and he wanted his children to, uh, to read and do well. And. So he bought me uh, the Sports Illustrated subscription. He bought me some uh, sports books. Um, uh, back then, there was something called uh, New York Times, Times Monday. Now everyone has a sports section. But at that time, it was a big sports section. It was a big deal. Give it to me. So, yeah, it got me into reading. That's wild. And, you know, did you actually play sports or how did you kind of get into sports oh, yeah. journalism? I okay, sports. I played, I mean, I played sport, not at a high, high level, um, but I, you know, I played all through high school and whatnot. I mean, in college, it's really only on the intramural level. I didn't, I didn't play on Yeah, on college, college it starts to, I played baseball through high school and then college, it starts to get pretty serious. You have to be, yeah. you have to be you pretty have to be committed, in it, you know, and, you have to yeah. spend all your time doing that. Yeah. yeah so it has to be a commitment, but I, you know, I played a lot of growing up basketball and football and soccer and um, baseball and, um, so I was really into sports and, and I loved watching sports. And really I started, uh, you know, writing about sports more in the mid two thousands and, um, uh, on various blogs at the time. And then, it, uh, uh, ultimately turned into more mainstream writing. Right. And, um, it's, I've, I probably would not have found you just cause I, like I said, I, I'm not a massive sports fan these days, but, uh, I've been following you on Twitter for quite some time. And, uh, one of the things I really appreciate is you're, you're out there at all these protests interviewing people, you know, right. I think it's, uh, how did you start to kind of go down that whole route in terms of, uh, you know, doing more like on the ground activism and, uh, yeah, I, I find it very interesting, um, why people come out. I mean, we know why you come out. There's a, this hor horrific injustice. You know, we know right now as Derek Chauvin's on uh, trial, you don't have to be watching. Yeah, I don't even want to watch that fucking shit. You know, but you right, know, right. I mean, like as someone on Twitter mentioned, like, you know, you should take about five seconds to realize what happened. There shouldn't even be a trial. You know, right? You know, the you know the the it speaks for itself. The the video speaks for itself, and but I am interested in that. There are millions of people who will say, that's messed up, that's effed up, that's racist, that cop should go to jail. But there are not millions of people who will be so moved as to come out on the street and, and, and uh, you know, protest out, out in public. So I'm always very interested in, well, what's the, the, what brought you specifically out here? 
and um, honoring the intellect of the protesters, honoring the commitment of protesters and trying to tell that story because anytime you interview a protester, you get a different angle and you're not getting these angles on, on TV. You're just not. And you're, you're, you're hearing much greater depth of why someone is out there, what they're trying to accomplish by a protest rather it, it, that is deeper than just I'm screaming into the wind for therapeutic reasons. Not that that's not valid in and of itself. So I think the, the, my first protest, I, uh, my wife and I went down to Gina 6 back in 2007, Gina, Louisiana. There were some young men who were, you know, really sort of facing 20 years in prison over garbage charges on a school fight. So there was a big protest there. Um, and I don't think I was really interviewing anyone until I interviewed some people during Trayvon's protest in, in 2012, 2013, both years there were people out there first after it happened and then the trial and of george zimmerman and but but it really really took off for me in ferguson because i went with a group from dc to ferguson to uh help out protesters who were being pepper sprayed and, and tear gassed i should say and if you spray milk of magnesia on the protesters over the team we were going to do this and, and everybody was out there so you know it burns a lot and, and when you do that it's really helpful to to people as they're being after they're being tear gassed and what happened is i fell upon um, protesters who were young and were protesting in tents waiting till darren wilson was going to be arrested and they were occupying the space and young people and they were committed and i just said you know what i went to best buy i'm gonna buy myself a 4k camera drop some money um, on this and i have to document this this is just too important and i ended up staying there really for months um, shuttling back and forth to dc to a, a woman who took myself and other activists in to try to film that uh, and document you know their fight and so that's when it really took off. And since then, I've really been covering protests ever since. I mean, I'm located in D.C., but you know, I've been to Standing Rock. Um, I've been to anti-Nazi rallies, whether it's Charlottesville, Shelbyville. But now, you know, post-George Floyd, I'm really staying put in D.C. because there's been a vibrant, hidden movement that is still continuing on 10 months after uh, George Floyd right now. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you. I mean, there's a lot of things I want to talk to you about, but that was one of the things that I think you meant you had an article about like the sort of midnight yoga. Right. And uh, it was kind of funny. You mentioned in the article how, you know, the, the, the yoga posts seem to get a lot more viral hits on Twitter than, you know, this the actual protests. And uh, yeah, it's kind of like and uh, I know you've mentioned in other interviews just talking about, you know, online activism versus street activism and you and you kind of you know you mentioned that you kind of need both which yeah. i think you're kind of doing you're also on the street but you're also getting it out on social media which is part of the reason that you know i'm not always able to get to these protests but you know i retweet sure. a lot of your stuff because i think Thank what you. you're doing should be out there you know you're getting that kind of man on the street thing that of course mainstream media ignores and as you kind of mentioned in that article that you know, they they've just been ignoring those protests, just maybe a few like local news news crews like will check in. But, yeah, there's people still out there. And it is it, it's it's a very funny thing what mainstream media pays attention to and doesn't pay attention to. I mean, sure. I mean, mainstream media is there for the conflict. Um, they're there to often uh, paint protesters as thugs. Um, they're not there to paint the police as thugs unless you have something as blaring and glaring as a. Derek Chauvin video 
Um, they're not there to capture police violence. They're not there to talk about that. They are either going to ignore it or, and I'm talking about big corporate media. And in DC, big corporate media is really a one horse town in Washington Post, to be quite honest with you. And they're either going to ignore it or cover it poorly. And in the case of the DC protests, what pulled me out there was I kept getting stories and calls from protesters to stop going home at 11 and stop going home at midnight because the police were attacking the tents and attacking the food supporters and attacking the medics, usually at two and three in the morning after the media left quite strategically, I might add. Yeah. You mentioned that that in that article. That's super fucked up. It's super fucked up. It's it's very shady. I mean, you know, I've said this a few times before, you know, if you're comparing um, police brutality uh, to protesters and and lack of rights. Ferguson had a very perverse decency to at least do it in daylight. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh man, that's twisted. But yeah, I guess true. I guess true because yeah. maybe they're taking notes. They're like, all right, let's do it at like three thirty in the morning and some shit. Yes. Know. No, they didn't. They didn't care. They didn't care if you were there. They didn't care if you were white and you you were in solidarity with prominent black protests. They didn't care if you were media. They didn't care if you worked at Washington Post. If you were in Ferguson, and they, you could get some too. Some of this tear gas too. We got some for you too. In fact, one of the reasons Ferguson jumped off early on is when they roughed up a couple of uh, one Washington Post reporter, Wesley Lowry and um, Ryan Riley, Huffington Post reporter. And the, the last thing you want to do is rough up a big reporter who works at a, a big outlet, because then you get the weight of that outlet behind you. You know, very similar to when um, Jamal Khashoggi was uh, uh, killed, up. was yeah. cut up for the first time ever. You saw, you heard critique of Saudi Arabia, U.S. Right. ally, and exactly. whatnot. And, exactly. and the only reason that happened is that they messed with the Washington Post reporter. If he had not worked for Washington Post, it would have been a non-story. It had been over in a day. And um, because of all these other um, similar atrocities that Saudi Arabia might might well, commit. Plus, we, we have $100 billion dollars in arms to sell them. So it's exactly. like, ah, whatever. E- exactly. They cut somebody up, you know, it's fine. <laughs> it's, Let's that, have that, like that, that, let's have exactly. was that guy he was he did like a whole PR tour like kind of like right a few months before that so remember he was on like Oprah mm-hmm. and he met with The Rock and Bill Gates mm-hmm. and there was all these fawning profiles in mainstream media which I think is kind of hilarious like you know Thomas Friedman or something he's like a real reformer and then like you know months <laughs> right. later dudes like cutting shit up you know it's ridiculous right right that's, ridiculous. that's exactly what ha- that's exactly what happened so what to, to juxtapose ferguson when they were honest in their brutality they're very two-faced in dc so they smile they take pictures on black lives matter plaza and then at two and three in the morning the, the, the mpd the local police department they move in they brutalize so i had protesters were like chuck you need to stay out here you know at two three in the morning like stop going home at midnight and and myself and a couple other media people were urged to do that and I luckily my regular work schedule I have flexibility and I was able to move some things to the afternoon um, zoom calls and whatnot and so you know what I'm gonna start pulling some overnights I'm gonna start pulling overnights and um you if I could if there's brutality I could catch it and other times it's preventive um it's preventive because they know who who I am they know with a couple other media people there and you know they prefer not to do their dirt um that's wild documented yeah that's wild yeah and yeah. the thing and, and is, and you know, and obviously you get paid very handsomely to stay up all night, you know, I'm just kidding. Like, <laughs> I mean, that's another thing, too. You're you're obviously dedicated because you're truly driven by human rights get, and stuff. But it's yeah. it's is that like, you know, I you think you mentioned this in another now. interview that like it's yeah. kind of a problem that, you know, you can't necessarily really 
you know, make the same money that you could if you were a corporate sellout, you know, kind of reporting well, or, on this or, or stuff. Money, or money at all for most of most of it's for zero an hour, to be quite honest with you. So so it's 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 not a sustainable thing. I have a separate job and then I do journalism and then I do that on my own time, you know. So sometimes I every once in a while, once every six months. I did twice. I might ask for a hit for donations or pay for my lifts, which will go on for months. But for the most part, it's voluntary. Um, the protest stuff that I do, and um, and I have another job that subsidizes it, and then I I do you know no sports writing. So it's it's not a sustainable model by any chance. So when people ask me that, I'm, I, you know, you're doing it because you think it's important. But, um, you know, it's not like the Washington Post is going to have somebody out there from 12 to 5. They won't even have someone out there during the day. They're going to come out only if if there's conflict, you know what I mean? If there's um, known conflict almost ahead of time, you know what I mean? Yeah. Should the outcome of the Derek Chauvin trial, and I really hope it doesn't, should it be the wrong verdict, Um It'll be crazy all over the country. I can tell you that right now. But I'm just going to hope that it's the right verdict. But if that were to happen, you'd just keep watching the post out there. Yeah, yeah. And um, you know, I mentioned you know, and kind of talking about that, you know, in terms of just being driven, because I I I heard another interview you were talking about how your father taught you, you know, he was progressive in some ways, taught you to be against racism, but never taught in a way to fight back or be a truly anti-racist. I don't know if you want to kind of talk about yeah, that and just even the, sure. the concept of you know another thing you mentioned that you know an inactive passive you know white person who is disgusted and doing nothing is fundamentally doing basically no more than an ardent bigot they're just both sitting right. in their chairs so i mean i don't know they're if you just, want to kind of expand on that you know i think it's really important so yeah i could say and and my background is jewish so i i did come come in with um you know an understanding and a history of of persecution so my parents didn't make me watch holocaust movies at a pretty young age or whatever young teenager and whatnot so you know that that's there and and i and that being um rooted in my father yeah he he would be like no he wouldn't tolerate racism or any way he heard it but as i said he at no point did he say be, like be anti-racist be actively fight racism and and i think that's the problem the problem is that we are not taught that you have to fight against something um actively oppose something because the the, the nazis who 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 took the capital on january 6th they're fighting for something they're fighting for white supremacy right and in right. so many ways um they're fighting for oppression they're fighting for racism well you can't just be neutral when that is going on you can't just be neutral in this society when Derek Chauvin has his um, knee on George Floyd's head for, for, for nine minutes. You cannot have neutrality in that um, instance. And what's happened is a lot of white people think it's just okay to say, well, I'm not racist, which is often not true, by the way. Yeah, um, <laughs> you know. Real talk right there. Exactly. Exactly. You know. well, I'm not right. Every white person is kind of racist. I mean, right. you know. Mm-hmm. In terms yeah, of like under, at least understanding your privilege, that you know is sort of like sure. you know that's an sure. ongoing thing. As 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 you mentioned in another interview, that it's, it's sort of an ongoing thing to kind of uh, keep unraveling this. You know, you know, I, I mean, absolutely. I mean, you when you feel attacked, you you fight, you 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 fight back. Man, the only the only reference in my lifetime of white people in mass feeling attacked, feeling fearing for their life is in the weeks after 9-11. That's, that's all we got. That's all we got for white <laughs> people to feel 
vulnerable. And, that's and you know after what happened? Hundreds of years people? of uh, right. you know oppression, imperialism, and, and you know, right. And kill, you know what? Killing happened? tens of millions in the Congo or wherever, you know. Exactly. You know what happened? White people lost their damn mind. White Americans lost their damn mind. Well, you know what? We lost our minds so much that we're going to attack a country that never even attacked us. I don't know. The, uh, Iraq has nothing to do with anything, but they look Arab and stuff. So that's good enough for me. And we're just going to bomb the shit out of them and kill over a million um, Iraqis. And not only that, we'll go send more Americans to their death than 9-11. And we'll spend $6 trillion doing it so we could dance in the streets when Osama bin Laden is killed. So th this is the reaction when white people feel vulnerable. Okay. And and I and I specifically say white people because if you actually look at the post-Iraq polls, um, the biggest resistance came from black community. If you look at the polls, most black Americans were against um going to war in Iraq. Jesse Jackson was probably the most high-profile member. He was in the streets against it. Um, even half the Democrats voted against it in the Senate. I believe there are 23 Democrats in the Senate. So the idea that Joe Biden and other um, Democrats were just duped uh, um, is silly, that there wasn't a, a strong he contingent. Was even it. Congress. He was promoting it. So you had, and the New York Times was backing it and spreading lies. Yeah, exactly. and complicit, the Judith Miller and, and company. Yeah. And so, so when you look at how, what how white people react. The only time you have a reference of vulnerability of lack of safety for white lives and white people go crazy. And then to say, well, you don't understand how black people feel right now when the, the, every black teenager is feeling vulnerable and their parents are feeling vulnerable because a police officer could kill them and brutalize them in broad daylight. Yeah, it's not just it. the you... teenagers. Uh, I, I've, I've interviewed right. uh, you know, someone who's a mom who has a son who's 21 or 22, and it's yeah. the same shit. They, they yeah. fear for their, right. you know, their children. Yeah, yeah. So I know I know that white people could react to fear because I saw the insanity after 9-11. But you're just not going to you're going to fight the police brutality uh, for for other people. So, you know, we have to address that. We have to confront that and and uh, raise the bar. Yeah, because I mean, I think that's kind of an aspect of liberalism is that they only it only, you know, the sort of liberalism, neoliberalism thing. It's like they only sort of care when it happens to them directly, you know, as you were kind of saying, like, well, maybe The Washington Post is not going to write about something until their own reporter gets gassed. But that's kind that's, of the problem. That's how it happens. You know? that, that is the problem. You know, they and don't really funny. think like, well, I'm fine. And it kind of like extends even to this general liberalism thing. Like, we'll vote for Biden and, uh, you know, the kids won't be in cages anymore. But of course they would. But it never really affected you anyway. So you're back to brunch <laughs> anyway. So fuck it, you know. I mean, that, that's exactly right. And, and it's funny, the example that I talked about, about reporters um, getting um, hurt. You see that a lot. I, in the post-George Floyd protests, some of the most vocal reporters in the mainstream were hit by rubber bullets during the post-George Floyd protests. Like, I saw Ali Belshi, he was going hard. And, and he was going hard, but he mentioned a few times he got hit and he got shoved and he got messed around with by police a little bit. So then you're going you're gonna to see a little stronger um, push um, against the policing um, because when you're in mainstream, it's not just you, you know, you know, it's not just you, you have producers who right, right. put you in a box and, and, and put limits around you and, you know, the good ones. And I'm not a, a anti uh, necessarily anti-journalists in corporate America, if they're pushing the envelope um, within their space, um, then, you know, that's fine. If you're, they're sort of 
giving the news on your more on your terms but there is a box and you can't go too much beyond that box and if you go beyond that box you'll be fired and yeah i think think you were just talking about that even like today or whatever about lester holt like you know that like you know that mainstream you know even people like chris hayes or whatever like they might dabble into some kind of leftist semi-progressive territory but yeah, they they understand their box, and that's why they still have a job. And as you he, said, he would be out of a job if he was again be reporting on like the Haiti protest properly, because he that would, doesn't to- you're not towing the line. So see ya, you know. You're, you're not towing the line. You know, Chris Hayes is someone who will dance on the edges every, every once in a while. They'll be like, oh, Chris, I'm like, I'm glad you covered that. But he knows, you know, where his box is, where he could push it. I want one time he was he was actually pushing back on a Palestine thing, which is the third rail on Free Palestine, which is the third oh, rail yeah. of all, oh, yeah. all media, as you well know. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, like you, if you want to be out of a job. Exactly. Uh, um, Say you Free know, Palestine, you, you know. Say Free all, Palestine. All of a sudden you're anti-Semitic for, for not wanting it, genocide it, to Palestinians. It, you know? it, that, that's exactly right. Right. And so he'll push the envelope. Some people push the envelope here and there. But um, it, that, is, that is certainly a box. And I think a great example of that, I don't know if you recall back in, I believe it was 2003, uh, Phil Donahue was fired. Phil Donahue, I was just going to say, I was thinking about yeah. it. Yep. He was yeah. fired. But if you look at his ratings, his ratings were good. He didn't have bad rate. It wasn't like, oh, you're getting bad ratings. He, he had said some higher ups. I got to go. We can't have you going against the Iraq war. You know, we have corporate ties that are all connected here. And you, you can't be talking like this. And really, you haven't seen an anti-war voice since. You've never seen a panel where like, let's see what these anti-war activists. You don't you don't do that. You may have a general general who's <laughs> the generals who are telling you about what happened. So even let, let, yeah, let's go general- back spooks think tank fucks like max boot or some shit you know just like not good people not good people even a month ago (laughs) no absolutely even a month ago we bombed syria it's a one-day story they say hey we biden bombed syria and you never heard anything about it now the next day it comes out 22 syrians were murdered i don't know maybe that's something we want to hear about maybe that's something we want to inform americans about because the rest of the world knows 22 syrians were killed but if you go to 99 of america they won't know 22 syrians were killed because no one ever told them so you have to go on your own uh, you know dig into the guardian or something to find out this information or look at foreign news so it's insane think for a second if someone dropped a bomb here in america and 22 americans were killed we'd be talking about it every single day yeah, and telling and probably advocating nuking said country or whatever, you know. Exactly. And and that is the kind of difference. It's sort of like what they talk about, what they don't talk about, and it's kind of controlling conversation and it's very depressing to me, you know, because I feel like people should be smarter. I mean, they're adults, but it's just if you just continually rely on mainstream media, not only you're going to be not informed, you're going to be misinformed. And it just makes you really gullible, even with all this sort of drum beating towards China and stuff. It's just, you know, it's terrible. I don't know. Well, you know, we could say people should be smarter, more informed, but the truth is 90% of all media consumed is from the big five and corporate media. So you're going to be as informed as your sources. Yeah. So you, I mean, even myself, who really is interested in a lot of things, I I have to go out of my way. 
Um, and if I don't go out of my way, I won't know. Even as someone who wants to be informed, I'm woefully uninformed. I'm sure there are all kinds of bombs dropped that I don't know about. Um, I didn't go out of my way to seek that information. If I wasn't covering the Haiti protest down in downtown D.C., I wouldn't have learned all this information and all these facts from all my interviews that are nothing more than through my interviews. And I learned so much. And then I started doing some research on, you know, what uh, I was told by people I interviewed. And it's happenstance that I, you know, happened to cover that protest. So, you know, it's very, very difficult. And you have to have a will just to try to be informed. You have to seek out various news channels that aren't going to be fed to you. Right. Yeah, because I saw you were po you were talking about sanctions and stuff. And I think what that's kind of a cool aspect. And in a sense, that's also part of this, you know, me starting this podcast is to talk and and learn from people. And I think, you know, especially talking to people protesting, it's like you're probably going to not only learn why they came there, you'll learn something for yourself in a way. Oh, it's an absolute exchange. It is not anything other than that i learned so much from protesters it's part of what's happening but but there's something deeper than that it's an acknowledgement that our system of journalism is backwards that the system of journalism we have says the position the person in the position of power is the expert the military general is the expert we interview after we bomb. The police chief and the police statement and being a police stenographer are the people that we ask what happened to when we know damn well they're professional liars, yeah, right? Absolutely. But who's the expert? It's an acknowledgement that the person who is the recipient of oppression is in the best position to talk about that very oppression. If I want to talk about racism, I want to talk to black people and other people of color and sexism. I want to hear a woman's point of view of, um, and, and, and how that's integrated into classism. I want to speak to people whose lives are most directly affected by police terror and police brutality. And, and you can only do that by talking and learning and realizing that they're the experts. They are the experts. They have to, when you have to live with a condition, you know about that condition uh, and privilege makes you stupid. So if there's like someone myself who's um, steeped in privilege and you want to know what's really going on, you have to talk to people. So if a Quran Hilton is is murdered and i talked to 10 people in the community i really got a sense that the, what was going on and the cop that murdered him knew everybody and was terrorizing that community for years washington post could do a deep dive and tell that story with all their resources they choose not to yeah exactly exactly yeah and it's uh you know it's just great like what you're doing out there like i said it's and and I know you you've also mentioned even like that's you know on a certain level there's you know when people are saying protests like of course black people have been protesting police brutality for a long long time so even beyond and, and of course I'm giving you kudos but it's like there also another thing media sort of ignores is not just the black voices in the streets but even the people who even black journalists and other people who have been protesting this stuff for a long time all kind of get you know, push to the sidelines generally, you know? Sure, sure. And then and I obviously have to 
um, acknowledged in my own privilege in, when I'm covering street protests. If uh, one of my partners out there, colleague Black House News, I'm often with when we're on January 6th and we're on the Hill um, and there are Trumpers and neo-Nazis all around, you know, I'm, I'm more protected. It's just the way it is. You know, I, I'm more protected. Moving in certain police spaces, I'm more protected. When you're getting into women doing street journalism, I'm more protected. Um, and even even in the hate I receive, um, it's a different type of hate, you know, as, as a man. Don't get me wrong. Anybody who, who covers Nazis, you're going to get death threats. And you're going to be get people coming at you and everyone will tell you that who does it. Um, but if you're a woman, they they will explain what they're going to do to you before they kill you. I mean, it's just awful when I when I compare notes with some some other people. So there, there are levels of privilege and access um, that make it a little bit easier if, if you're a white male. And, the, and what you want to do is where you can help um, uh, open that access up to other people who do not have as much privilege as you. Yeah. I mean, I, like I said, I think that's great. I mean, I guess uh, you were mentioning there was a term like emancipatory journalism, you know, or, or justice oh, wow. journalism. So you, yeah, yeah. You so know, it's it's, that was the first time that. I heard that term. But I mean, it, you know, again, because the whole concept of quote unquote objective news when it isn't objective there's always a bias so sure. you know you might as well be on the the side of human rights instead of fascism well at least one would think you know but yeah, you that, know the concept of said. you know like justice journalism and, and you know kind of almost taking that to uh sports too you know so it, how does that, that kind of how, do, how does that uh inform like you know i know you've, you've written about uh obviously you know Colin Kaepernick and and yeah. Eric Reed too, which I didn't realize sure. that he was also being blacklisted. Yeah, he's being he's being blacklisted as well. Now I just want to make a note on the the root of emancipatory journalism, which goes by different names. But that particular name, I first heard it from Dr. Jared Ball, who is a professor out here in Maryland, and uh, he learned it from a person said Dr. Hamid Shah who talked about it and talked about the various concept of the expert as the, the person who is the recipient of oppression right. and, and how it's a model. And so, you know, you in different places, some places they call it movement journalism. I just use the word just journalism because it rolls off the tongue nicer. Right. But but movement journalism, a lot of people are, are using um, that term. And it has a rich history. And if you go back to the Black press, um, the Pittsburgh Courier, the Chicago Defender, which were two of the biggest um, black press papers in the early 1900s, um, the black press never claimed objectivity, nor did they claim that the white press was being objective. They said, they're not being objective. We're not being, this is how we see the truth. We see Jim Crow is bad. We see lynching is bad. Right. We're going to take that human rights position and say it's bad and not act like there are two sides to lynching or two sides to Jim Crow. But what has happened is when you talk about the dominant press, one of the tools of journalistic white supremacy is acting like human rights has two issues, has two sides. Um, and, and, and it does it. It simply does it. You know, if you're looking at um, something like, you know, making profit off of people in cages and concrete cages, that is mass incarceration. This is a human rights issue. If you're talking about police getting away with murder, which is modern lynching, this is a human rights issue. When you're talking about that, I have the medicine to keep you alive. Other countries can give you this medicine, but we're going to jack up the price. So we're going to make it Classic. so difficult for you that you're going to die. Classic gangsterism. It's gangsterism. It's gangster. This is, this is evil. I mean, this is yeah, evil. Right? It is, it is and, and, sociopathic shit. It's sociopathic shit. And, and they've normalized this sociopathic shit. They're not two sides to this. I'm yes. not going to get into debate about this. Yeah. That we can't afford to, to, 
have the sick get well with the medicine that's completely available. Yeah, I think you were mentioning that, uh, you know, on another podcast, this very important film, Lincoln the Vampire Slayer. But uh... right. <laughs> no, but I right. mean, you were mentioning, I guess, some point I, I missed that one. But uh, maybe if I get stoned enough, I'll watch it at some point. But basically, you were saying that, uh, you know, at one point, Lincoln is like hanging out with this racist and they, they have like a tea or get some food or something. And it's like, yeah, that's the concept that like you, you, we shouldn't be debating about human rights and you shouldn't necessarily be rolling with these people, you know. Right. Well, it's 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 a humoristic exchange because Link, Lincoln, the Vampire Slayer, obviously is a parody, and, and basically it's Stephen Douglas who's talking about, it. and he says, "Oh, we disagree on slavery," uh, and he said, "I couldn't disagree with you more." He's like, basically, Lincoln's like, "Slavery's bad." He's like, "Couldn't disagree with you more," and then they go discuss it over tea and biscuits, you know. And that's just there's something and, wrong with that. There is something there, really wrong there with is. that. They're the privilege. There they're privilege, and even like, okay, let's have a discussion with just an avowed. You know, not to but, and racist, isn't that exactly you know? what we're doing right now? What we do in our discussion about police brutality? Isn't that the same privileged discussion on TV that you see on CNN or whatever? Yeah, yeah. And you know, yeah. uh, in terms of talking about like, um, you know, within sports, because I know another thing, it's just interesting. Like I said, I'm not really following sports all that much, but the politics of sports definitely it's. It's because it's still kind of operating in the system. And like one of the things you were mentioning was uh, how the NFL kind of like uh, is how they kind of screw over disabled players. And sure. uh, I don't know if you want to talk about like just yeah. sort of like they've kind of taken over almost their health care and then they keep cutting. Yeah. it. And even though, of course, they got untold billions. And, and you yes. were mentioning that a lot of. You know, major label and you know, I mean, major league NFL players might last a season or two, and and you yeah. know, but they might have injuries that are going to affect themselves for the rest of their lives, and it just it seems cruel for uh, you know, a, you know, this these sports franchises that make so much money, especially over black players, to then of course turn them aside once that they're not playing anymore. I'm um, sure, sure, and and when we talk about the blackballing of Eric Reed, which we often forget. He is probably just as much blackballed for his stance in support of disabled players and his fight against the, the newest collective bargaining agreement as he is kneeling. You're not supposed to challenge the NFL. Even the NFL Players Association is pretty much uh, uh, goes Roger Goodell's way. So, so what he brought light to um, through his um, lawyer as well, he had them look over the agreement and they said, wow. For about 400 disabled former players who are getting their disability benefits gutted, where it used to be so uh, uh, an independent um, disability, uh, as I would make a determination if you have a disability. Now the NFL doctor has to approve it. Well, the NFL doctor is working for the NFL. And what's happening is (laughs) they're trying to cut down on all the disability claims. So, you know, the, you have these groups of NFL wives who've also been a champion with, with Eric Reed and the NFL wives club um, is saying, Hey, listen, my husband, I can't leave my husband in the kitchen with the stove on. Cause I can't leave. I can't even work anymore because they may, you know, put something on fire cause they forget where they are and they had too many concussions and they don't know where they are. And they're they, they, a lot of times the wives are turned into caretakers. That's and insane. That's insane. Yeah, it's cra- and they and they can't get disability, and it's some um, it's really crazy. And so I had a lot of uh, opportunities to uh, both engage 
with a number of wives of disabled players and then uh, to read about them, it's really uh, a very difficult life. And people think it's, it's glamorous once you retire. But okay, you, you made a few million for three years and now you have debilitating injuries. You can't work and your spouse can't work because they have to be a full-time caretaker. That's crazy. And and as you mentioned, in sort of in league with what we were talking about, mainstream media, a lot of the sports media, as you mentioned, didn't interview any of these wives like they could have, you know. So, again, it's no. not, they're not really trying to tell that story. And you're saying, no. uh, again, the NFL kind of like, you know, through access, like if you get on their bad side, then you can't necessarily Oof. go to the games or interview people. So it's sort of like. Sort of like That's mainstream exactly media. Right. It's like not only are you not going to talk about Israel Palestine, you're not going to talk shit about the NFL, or how are you going to write your story if you can't interview anyone? You know, I mean, that's exactly right. You, as a political person, um, the NFL is is just a beast. It's on the level of the DNC. You know what I mean? Like right, from a political right. point of right, view, right, right, right. Um, you know, you're not going to go in there and start cursing out Biden and then get a return trip or whatever. You're not you're, you're going to lose your access if you if you don't play ball. And I think there's so many examples of of the NFL just squashing stories of, um, you know, you have hundreds of local media people that the NFL grants access to where their local teams, the 32 local teams are. And if, if you want to go against the NFL, you're going to give up your access. I mean, even myself, my own, if I wanted a sports career, I've done incredible damage to it, a sports media career um, by just making a choice to tell the truth as I see it. Um, and you're going to lose a lot of perks. You're going to lose a lot of access. You're not going to get the salary. You're not going to play ball. So it's very similar to going against the DNC and whatnot. If you go, if you don't play ball, you're going to be on the house. And right. that's just the way it is. Here's a great example of this. So in a few years ago, Peyton Manning, I don't know if you heard about it, but a HGH case came against him. And uh, Al Jazeera America did an incredible piece of investigative reporting and you can find it online it's 45 minutes and they were exposing a gh use and whatnot and peyton manning was exposed and shipments that went to his wife were exposed and essentially they had a, a undercover dealer that they were filming the whole time this this is over months and the NFL just made the story go away peyton manning went out there and said this is nonsense this is garbage but anyone who actually watched the documentary was like, this is the least, uh, the farthest thing from garbage at all. And what they claimed was, is that the guy, Charlie Sly, who was duped, um, they said he was going along with this charade over months. This is, the, this is their response. And there was no pushback by media. Everyone got in line. Peyton Manning, who is a force and who has the highest, um, likability rating of any active player at that time just made it go away and 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 everybody and all everyone in media played ball when they knew damn well uh it wasn't uh, uh the the documentary and the investigative report reporting was on point yeah it and it's kind of like again it's sort of focusing people's attention like you shouldn't pay attention to this pay attention to that you know mm -hmm. in a way and another thing that you mentioned that I didn't even realize, because, you know, I vaguely remember this happening, you know, I was younger, is uh, Len Bias, you know, yes. and his overdose, which um, 
I didn't really realize at the time, but it led to much tougher crack laws and some of the worst, you know, that that was kind of a sort of, uh, you know, catalyst type of force that sort of, you know, did that. And um, and that the irony, as you mentioned, is Len didn't even do crack. I think he, he died from doing <laughs> cocaine, but they're like, oh, okay, he's a black guy. And it was sort of like cocaine involved. So let's, it's, it's kind of crazy. That's insane. It is insane. And I did a lot of research on Len Bias. And then through Len doing that research, he's a very underrated figure. He was the linchpin to being able to pass a lot of horrific legislation in 1986. We like to cite 1994 as the the, the terrible crime bill, but that was like the, the whipped cream on top. 86 was right. the worst one. 88 was horrible crime bill. And then 94, you know, just just doubles down on a lot of um, what was done in 86. 86 changed the crack versus cocaine laws. It implemented mandatory minimum sentencing of $5 just for possession. It is Joe Biden's um, worst work is not 1994, which he is rightfully criticized for in the, the Biden bill, but it's under Republicans. Um, him working with Strom Thurmond as the head of the judiciary and passing some of the worst legislation ever. And people don't believe me when I say that he was to the right of Reagan and he was to the right of George Bush. He was pushing them from the left because they. what happened is Democrats wanted to show that they were, quote unquote, tougher tough on crime, on crime. tougher exactly. on drugs yep. for political reasons. Yep. So Reagan actually wanted to stop the law, which was already horrific at 20 See, to that's 1. That's what's kind of crazy. I didn't even really realize that. I didn't either. I didn't either. <laughs> Len, Len Bias led me here. You know, I was on the Uncle Joe myth for a while. You know, I was all well. On that I Uncle mean, Joe you know, I, I mean, you know, I wasn't, but it's all good. I'm okay. not trying to say you're 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 the man. You're the man. You know. No, I was once. I was. But I mean, he's but he's been he's been, he's been bad for a long, long I didn't, time. He man. was. But I didn't know that. Though. It was hidden from me. <laughs> no, it's and all I good. Stood, and then I do digging and I spend all this time on C-SPAN. I went like digging up all these videos on C-SPAN and the whole week. I'm like, oh, my God. He said this. He said this. He said the other thing. And you're like, oh, my God. People don't realize this. Joe Biden didn't just favor mass incarceration. He was its main architect. We'll yeah. give Reagan that, you know, banner. And don't get me wrong. No love for Reagan. Reagan was horrible. Yeah. But but Joe Biden was pushing Reagan to the right when he was in the judiciary on civil forfeiture laws in 1982 was the first on the drug czar, which which ended up to be Bill Bennett, a horrible person. That's right. Biden's work. Right. Civil forfeiture is Biden. The civil forfeiture, for those who don't know, that's just legalized. Oh, robbery. yes. 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 That's one of the worst. Yes, horrible. Yes. Yeah. That is some horrible shit. Again, no. more gangsterism. More gangsterism. Gangsterism, mandatory minimum sentencing, um, crack versus cocaine disparity. You right. can have a hundred right. times as much cocaine as crack for the same penalty as Biden drove that. Reagan wanted to stop at 20 to 1, which is already horrible. Biden wanted to go to 100 to 1. This is Biden's work. And people think, uh, you know, I'm just saying that because before he was president. No, I was saying this a couple of years before he was running when my mind was blown that he had such a role to the right of, of Bush and to the right of, of Reagan. And so even before you get to 1994, Biden's worst work was already done, but people don't acknowledge it because the Republicans were in power, not understanding that the Democrats were going to the right of them. That includes Tip O'Neill, who used Len Bias as a, a wedge to, to, to pass the legislation. Tip O'Neill, the, the Speaker of the House at the time in 1986, was was the person who said Len Bias is the only person anyone is talking right about right now. Get some legislation on my goddamn desk. 
He, well, he was tre- he was trending on Twitter in '86. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean it, it's true. It's it's kind of yeah. I, I remember uh, you mentioning that and that that it, yeah. yeah. Tip O'Neill was also involved with that too. Yeah, it's crazy. Right. It's crazy. It's crazy. And the thing and is, that- it, it goes back to like this kind of concept of. Um, I forget someone had written a really good article about a certain kind of hitch or fulcrum that only goes in one direction. So it's like, you know, like it, you know, basically politics only go rightward, and then maybe the Democrats kind of hold it to around the same level and maybe move it a little more to the right, and then a fascist like Reagan or Trump comes in and moves it way more to the right, and then they kind of right. hold it. And but this has been going on for a long time, as people joke on Twitter. This is like Reagan's eleventh term in office. You know, <laughs> like we. Still we still have Ronald Reagan in fucking office, basically. You're, no, you know? you're right. You're, you're right. And you seem like you've been a leftist for a while. And and I'm a reform liberal. You know, I'm, I'm be honest with you. I used to believe a lot of the lies. Um, I, I campaigned for Obama. I went and knocked on doors for Barack Obama. Well, no, I was excited the first time Barack yeah. Obama, you know, because yeah. it's like, OK, but it's, you know. There was, I mean, and, you know, there's people like Ali Abdemima from, like, Electronic Intifada, because he was based in Chicago. Like, there's yeah. people who were kind of, like, they knew the time even before, because yeah. they were around when he was an activist and kind of, you know, community organizer or whatever, kind of coming up in Chicago and kind of burning people and just kind of doing this sort of liberal shit that Obama is an absolute master of. I, I mean, I think he's, like... You will never get a better neoliberal than Obama because he's just the slickest. He can sing like Al Green while trying to, you know, basically sell you TPP. You know, it's like, you know, trying to sell like these like crazy, you know, trading partnerships and wars and all this stuff. But kind of like putting a very, very slick thing on it. And, and, uh, you know, Biden obviously is like the worst version of it, you know. Biden's Biden's the worst because Biden had a history before he became vice president was out in the open. But we didn't know that much, you know, about Obama. So when Obama, you know, people forget a lot of people forget. He also ran as an anti-war president. He ran yeah. against the war in Iraq. He said, I'm going to close Gitmo on day one. Gitmo, Gitmo's still open, by the yeah, way. Yeah, like, exactly. You know, people have been, been there like exactly. 20 years now. So, so he said But that, that's the I neoliberal aspect of it, is talking out the side of your mouth. You know, you're not really yeah. going to do all this shit, you know, the but price. you're really good at convincing people that you are, but you're not. You, you, Whereas, like, the Republicans not. are like, no, let's gas them. You know what I mean? Like, right, they're just right. straight fascists, but, like, that's the twisted thing, and that's what kind of gets me, you know, you know, just well, really right. angry say, about a lot of this liberal shit is they keep falling for the same, you know, as someone mentioned on Twitter, which I've you know also mentioned many, many times, it's like the Democrats are like Lucy with the football, you know, and it's like, how many times are you going to be Charlie Brown and trying to kick the football and she pulls that's, it away and they're just going to keep pulling it away because they're not actually progressive. They're just, you know, <laughs> no, that's right. I mean, you see it, you see it in Haiti when, when Haiti, exactly. Um, when he Trump says shithole countries and Trump is putting kids in cages and Trump is is uh, has these terrible immigration policies. You know, I covered protests where nine days after Trump was in office, people were out in the streets against his Muslim ban, out in the streets against his immigration policies by the thousands I covered. Not one person came to me on Twitter who was on a liberal left. A Democrat said, yeah, you know, it's too soon. It's too soon to be critiquing Trump and too soon to be covering <laughs> these protests of, of, of Trump out there. Yes. Nobody said that. 
that to me. Exactly. And, then, and, and that's what I was getting. So I'm doing the same thing with Biden. They're smaller protests, of course, much smaller. Right. But it's the same policies. It's the same thing. And people, oh, it's too soon. Give him a chance. Well, you know, in the last week, um, um, the 400 people have been deported. So we another week could be another 400 lives. Um, when, when is the appropriate time for families not to be broken up at, at this rate? Because it's moving pretty fast. So you know, it's it's very interesting to watch that my politics didn't change, but the reaction or my reporting and coverage didn't change, but the reaction did. And, you know, it's really interesting and to see that. And I'm going to disappoint, you know, maybe some of your followers. I'm going to tell you something that, that you know, a lot of the leftists disagree with me. Um, although I am a leftist, I did, I did, I voted against Trump, and I hate Biden. I absolutely no, no, hate him. I and, don't, I don't. I mean, like uh, that whole thing is like a personal choice. My whole shit yeah. is is more like the sort of vote blue with the the SpongeBob text, where it's you know, I mean, like the right. capital, like the vote blue crowd, tell you know, yelling at people to vote when it's like you know, it's really if you wanted to vote against you know an obvious you know clown fascist like Trump, I get it. He is. You know, he is fascist. that guy. He's awful. But it's like, you know, just don't expect that these things are really going to change in, in other areas, no. you know, because, again, no. there's decades and decades when Joe Biden didn't actually stutter or have problems. You know, like that's another thing. I'm sure if you looked at a lot of those old school C-SPAN things, it's like he's he talks completely fine. You know, that's no, another thing right. like the the degeneration of this dude, you know, oh. The, the, right. ro I mean, the robot, right. the neoliberal, neoliberal robot is uh, starting to malfunction, you know, but well, they still got to, like, throw them in there to run things, you know. I, I looked at it as a choice between one house in absolute flames and one house in absolute smoke. And and all right, let me let me vote against the one in flames because maybe I have more time to put out this smoke, and that, that's like the, no, the I slightest get it. I, difference. I'm not, I'm, like, I'm, I'm not hating on the, you know? on the voting thing. It's just more like when people are like you know, telling you to vote because Biden is going to be so, so, so much better. And, and sort yeah, of like, again, it. as you're talking about actively ignoring these things, I mean, if anything, it's also like even people like the squad are kind of sort of showing their ass now because it's like yeah. they're still sort of going along with all this stuff. Like, it's mm -hmm. like, OK, if you guys were saying we have to vote for Biden because of the kids in cages and then we can't even film the people that are still in cages because that's right. that's disrespecting them. I mean, it's just I don't know. The yeah. gaslighting really gets to me. It's yeah. really you're either so for kids much. in cages or <laughs> yeah. you're against kids in cages. Pretty you're either for or against it. Yeah, you know. So it's 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 frustrating. It is it is frustrating when you are fighting the very same policy and all of a sudden the crowd that allegedly hated that policy last year is kind of okay with it now or not enough to say anything or like i said or it's too soon why is it too soon it well, ain't too it, soon yeah, for that it's family. like that, that toy story meme that goes around where it's like i don't want to play with you anymore but it's like the democrats with the me too movement you know it's like you know when right. kabanov was going to get confirmed you know and people were kind of talking about that but then all of a sudden when you know like tara reed comes forward with biden or even some of the people Andrew defending cuomo, cuomo and it's yeah. like all of a sudden it's like I don't want to play with you anymore. I don't now I don't care about that's women it. because it's a Democrat that's getting accused. And it's that's like a, holy that's exactly shit, right. man. Where is your fucking morals? Why, 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 where are you more? Why are you holding on to Andrew Cuomo? What 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 is it about Andrew <sighs> Cuomo that you you need to hold on to? Because he has a D in front of his name. I I don't understand what that means. It was you know? also it was also again someone who has years and years of being a tried and true neoliberal. It's not even like you know. 
It's like even if he, the classic shit is even beyond like all the you know the nursing home stuff, which he should be thrown in jail for, honestly. But I mean, the nursing course, home that, stuff is serious awful. stuff. But I mean, it's you know, as- he was. I remember him talking about how like when the COVID was first breaking, and it's like, oh, we're kind of short on ho- on hospitals, and it's like, yeah, why? You're like the the hot dog guy because you're the one who closed the hospitals to to build condos and stuff. You know, it's like, yeah. I don't know. You know, it's it's yeah. These and by, I mean, um, Andrew Cuomo has also something else on his record um, in that it, you know, there was an article in the nation about it at the time, but uh, he is the first governor to punish the peaceful boycott of BDS. Oh, yeah, BDS. Yes, yeah, that's right. He signed that. Yeah, exactly. He signed it. He's the first one. And then it ended up going on into federal legislation. But he started that process, which is an anti-democracy process. So a boycotting should be a democratic right, whether you agree with a boycott or you disagree with a boycott. Um, no, it's fundamentally unconstitutional. Someone. It's it's yeah. crazy. It is crazy. Yeah. yeah and um yeah, he was one, and also Cuomo was uh, writing. I think that bill that kind of protected the nursing home owners from being sued, and then yep. I think that same language Dirty. was co-opted by the Republicans. So again, yeah. it's, it's sort of like they're really. I mean, when it comes down to a lot of stuff, there there is it's you know it's there's really one party, but uh, you know there's just two versions of it, you know. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, I know we've been rapping for a minute. There was one more thing, uh, uh, another article that you had written that we could talk about a little bit, which is uh, the sort of tweet thread from Martellus uh, Bennett talking about the NFL. And uh, yeah, I don't know if you want to kind of talk about that piece or whatever, but he really, (laughs) I mean, again, this is what's kind of nice. You know, like I'm all for professional journalism and stuff like that, but it's kind of nice when people just say the shit, you know, like just say, you know, just say it how it is, you know, like, you know, either with curses or whatever, like all these coaches with white daddy syndrome in the league, like you would never necessarily read a a sentence like that in the New York Times. But, you know, how is that not true, you know? talking down yeah, I mean, to people you know and it's uh i think it's kind of nice to hear those voices you know at least echoed in media you know it, it is and he had to he you know martellus bennett is just incredible in his honesty and even when he was still playing he was incredible like his brother michael bennett so kudos to the bennett parents because there is two incredible children not just who became nfl players but have just been champions of um um of marginalized people off the the field and but you can't say too much about coaches while you're playing you can't you don't have the right because you're gonna find yourself out of a job so he once he retired he really let loose on that score so he was often talking about what was problematic outside of um sports but he thought he was telling the truth and he has that leeway now that he got out of the league he had a decent career um but I appreciate Martellus Bennett. I mean, that man speaks truth to power, as does Michael Bennett. Yeah, and I think what's kind of cool is it's sort of that in that piece that you're talking about, it kind of goes back to getting people off the couch because, you know, you were talking about the uh, betrayal of white player silence, you know, that yeah. he, you know, I think one of his quotes is, funny thing is if the white guys that I showered with, slept next to, shitted next, counted on me, would never speak up for me, you know, and it's kind of crazy. You know, and who did Martellus Bennett play with? He played with both Tom Brady 
and um, Aaron Rodgers, some of the biggest names. And Aaron Rodgers has been said some good things, but in my opinion, not nearly anywhere as vocal. Like he's more privately um, in agreement or he'll. So if you ask him a question about Kaepernick, he'll say, yes, Kaepernick should be playing. Um, there, there are only a handful of people who in the NFL who have major power. Right. Because you you have a situation where there's no guaranteed contract year to year that could cut you and not pay you the rest. So and we've learned through Colin Kaepernick that winning is not the most important thing. Um, Obviously, he would have been in the league and they can do that to any player. So Colin Kaepernick is a message to any player. So you've got about four or five players who have major status. They're all white and they're all probably white quarterbacks at any time. You know, if you had a Peyton Manning or you had a Tom Brady, um, Aaron Rodgers. So you need a white voice um, really because almost there are very few black voices that have that kind of um, sway, well, at least with white people anyway. So it's just a tough situation in the NBA. You have, more security and in the and major league baseball you have more security if you sign a 10-year contract then they have to pay you that contract um, 10 years from now right. and if you not it's not like that in the nfl you sign a five-year contract they could cut you after one year and not pay you the next four years right right interesting and it kind of goes back i mean we can end it on this but it was one of the things that you mentioned is that white people created this problem so they need to solve it on a certain level we can't just depend on you know, we should be listening to oppressed voices and all that stuff, but we should also yeah. be joining it and and actually pushing back against this stuff. You know, as opposed to just being like, "All right, we got to let them solve the problem that we started." You know, and continue to uphold. You know, well, you know, that's absolutely right, and we're at a very sensitive time right now because don't think for a second because Biden's in office that that white supremacist movement that grew under Trump isn't still growing, isn't still bubbling. You can't still be a force that the next Trump, even in four years, um, can continue that, whether it's Trump or it's uh, someone Trumpian. Um, you know, we're, we're seeing white supremacy grow. So one of the most disappointing aspects in my mind was prior to January 6th that Nazis were in town in DC in November, and they were in town in December. And um, not only did um, whites not come out in mass, but many influential white people on Twitter told them to stay home. So don't fight the Nazis. Yeah, I think I Let remember them... you mentioning that. Yeah. yeah. And it was, it was really, really bad advice. And by the way, and the, the, they became emboldened. They became emboldened. So what you have saw on January 6th on the lead up, they saw what they could do. And this is verified in text messages and other things. They saw that they could get away with, with police because they stabbed people actually in November, December. They assaulted people in November and December. And the counter protesters were vulnerable. I was out there. I was vulnerable too. But I, while I was less vulnerable than some other people. But so you had this dynamic where local black organizers in D.C. were saying, come out. And then you had famous people on Twitter, predominantly white people on Twitter were saying, no, stay home. Well, well, if you're um, I don't uh, I'm pull a name out of a hat. There are a few people, um, Damien Siskind or John Pavlovich, and they're telling people, no, stay home. Well, who's their audience? Their, their audience are white liberals. So they're really saying white liberals be safe. They're not saying black D.C. be safe. They're not right. saying homeless, right. homeless people who live right. in D.C. who are vulnerable be safe. They're not saying that the black organizers be safe. They're not saying that the black people coming home be safe. 
their audience is white liberals stay home. So you had this dichotomy on November 7th, um, not November 7th, but November 14th, when they announced that Biden officially won, you had white people in the streets by the thousands celebrating. And then one week later, the Nazis came to town and the Proud Boys are marching right alongside thousands of Trumpers and they weren't there. They, they, they stayed home. Well, no, that, that's problematic. You're going to have to fight racism. You're going to have to stand up to race. That doesn't mean you have to be in a physical fight or anything like that when I say that. But it means you have to show up. And we have some, we have some unprecedented showing up, even in D.C. in 2018, a year after the Charlottesville, quote unquote, Unite the Right rally, thousands of white people joined black people and other people of color and stood up to Nazis and shut that anniversary down. And so we've seen that happen. Even th- before Heather Heyer died, thousands from D.C. went to Charlottesville, said, hell no. And all of a sudden, the new, because Biden is elected, the new approach is, hey, you know, we don't got to worry about it. It's going to end by osmosis. The, the white supremacy is going to end by osmosis. And like my colleague, um, Black House News says, you're going to turn D.C. into a sundown town? Really? With no resistance? Really? Well, yeah, no. that's true. That's you're turning Chocolate City into a sundown town. There's, there's something very, very wrong with that, you know? Yeah, it's unacceptable. Yeah, I mean, because um, in terms of, like, talking about Twitter, one there's one other thing that you mentioned that kind of stood out to me was, uh, you know, Oscar Grant. Um, and there's so many names. That's another thing, too, because uh, I was listening to a few different interviews with you over the years, and you just you – just, get us you start to not forget the names but just just the sheer amount of names of people who've been killed but in terms of like twitter in terms of communicating at the national level that you know the trayvon martin case got a lot more like oscar oscar grant was sort of right before some of that online yeah. activism and maybe that's part of the reason that his name is not is known aside from obviously bay area there's yeah. a lot of protests and stuff and you're even I mentioning so. that now. It's that like, uh, you know, just with D.C. protests or Atlanta protests that the people get shot that, again, the news doesn't cover it. So it's sort of like not that these social media platforms are ideal either. They do all kinds of fuckery, but at least it's a way to try and get counteract this sort of mainstream media news to get things out there for people to pay attention to. Sure. I mean, I think that movement peaked in Ferguson. That was the birth of really the convergence of Twitter being a news source countering the the silly CNN narratives um, um, of everyone thuggery. And, and you had a whole bunch of people on Twitter expose Ferguson. And Twitter wasn't mature. It wasn't an activist tool back when Oscar Grant uh, was murdered, which was really on the first day of 2017 of in, as Obama was ushered into office, right? Right. And there were huge protests there. There were police in riot gear there. There were um, standoffs there. There was tear gas there. There was brutality there. And I only know this but being on the internet covering Davey D and a couple yeah, other Davey people. Yeah, Davey D. Who were, Shout out to Davey D. You know Davey D. Shout out to Davey D. He was covering on the net and then you got to go on the internet to find out what's going on. I think maybe CNN did one story. But if, if that had happened a few years later, as Ferguson, you would have seen every day what was really happening in Oakland. And we couldn't see it unless David D and two other three people were writing. About right. It. Right. So I do believe the convergence and the growth of, of Twitter at the time as a social media tool was huge to aiding the already existing organic uprising that was happening in the Ferguson streets in ways that um, you couldn't uplift Oscar Grant. Right. Right. And I, you know, I'm sorry, I don't want to keep you keep it going here, but there was one person that I wanted to mention that I also despise, and I know you're not a fan of either, which is Bill Maher. 
or Bill Maher. Bill Maher. Yeah, Bill Maher is like, uh, he is a a classic, classic character. And uh, I guess, you know, because you talked about what I thought was a good concept, which is free speech versus privileged speech, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, a lot like of free speech versus free publicity. And it's like, no, you don't have to platform someone like Milo or all these awful people. And that's not censorship. It's like you don't need to give Nazis a platform, you know. Right. But I mean, that kind of goes along with his thing anyway. You know, I, I don't know. But I, I think you use the right word platform. Platforming is the right word. I, I, I get annoyed when people say, oh, you're dying of speech. Why well, are you denying me speech? Bill Maher never invited me on his show. Bill Maher never invited you on his show. Bill Maher never invited thousands of people on his show. That but would actually challenge his views, you know, that he won't have who, who like a real. He, he would never invite someone that would actually rip him, you know. That's the whole he wouldn't. point. Where, where, where your Palestinian guests are, who, who yes, are you exactly. uh, on behalf of Palestinians? I haven't seen them on your show if you're so allegedly for, for free speech. He's not for free speech. Right. He's, he's for um, um, ratings, for one. He's for ratings. He has white supremacists on his show. He, um, he has um, um, not just Milo, um, who, who was there, but he, he had his Ann Coulter on Ann a bunch Coulter. of times. He had Steve Bannon on. And, and, you know, when he has these segments, Sam Harris, he, all those dudes, Sam, fuck Sam Harris, too. I know. And when he had, <laughs> when he had <laughs> Sam Harris, who's a master at making white supremacy sound. Uh, yeah, he's, and, he's uh, a modern day from phrenologist. He's a real piece of shit. He's a piece of shit. He'll have Charles Murray on the show. Exactly. Charles Murray. For an hour and a half. Exactly. And push back on one question. Let's have and, an intellectual know, discussion with that. Fuck. No. Come on. Exactly. Exactly. And Mars out of the same hair school. He was really yes. impacted. His Islamophobia yes. um, is a lot of it comes from Sam Harris. They go to conventions together. So they, these hate theists, um, I call them. Hate and, um, I like that. That's hate good. Theists, yeah. <laughs> I didn't make it up. Somebody else did. But he, That's good. This, this hate theist wing, you know, it, yeah, the new, it, the, arrogant. The, yeah, the new, new atheism. That was like a whole thing, you know. Yeah. Ah, you're just an asshole, and you're calling it something, exactly. and you're being an asshole. In fact, so much so that your atheism takes the form of a religion, which you tend to profess again. Oh, yeah. You know? so, yeah, Chris Chris it's, Hedges, it's I think, up. has talked about that. He calls them secular fundamentalists or whatever. Yep. I forget. Chris Hedges, had, Chris Hedges nailed it, yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's exactly right. So well, fuck Bill Maher. It's yeah. not free speech. He's giving... He's, he's giving Free publicity to white supremacists and then calling it, um, you know, free speech. He's an asshole. And I, I'm a former fan. And I'm saying this is a former fan. But yeah. but to me, he is the epitome of me of what is wrong with um, white liberalism as a whole. That those yeah. who are still fans of his, who have remained after all his Islamophobia, all his hate, all his promoting of white supremacists, there's something seriously wrong with that type of thinking. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, when you when people are still fans and it doesn't really phase them, then to me, the, again, it kind of reeks of privilege because you're probably not Palestinian. You're probably not being affected by, you know, even if, again, even if you don't necessarily agree with someone like Ann Coulter, if you don't really have a problem with someone platforming someone like that then you know it kind of goes back to that link in the vampire so like why are you talking to these people you why know? it's for it's for ratings and in and, and they're really softball interviews when he does them they get the nice cushy 15 yeah no milo segment. exactly and then and then he'll claim yeah. later that yeah I, I was i helped take down milo no you didn't you fuck he, he <laughs> absolutely did he uplifted milo exactly. to a CPAC convention invite and then there were the conservatives took him down yeah yeah but anyways, well, it was an absolute pleasure talking to you, man. Thanks hey, so much you. for your time. And uh, hey, th- thanks for the conversation. Appreciate it.
You've been listening to Small Changes, Stark Reality on jasoncharles.net. jasoncharles.net. Deep talk, deep sounds. That was so deep.